Well, we are going to start a new uh, series today called Harvesters, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But before I do, I want to um, uh, deal with some housekeeping matters related to our church. Um, if uh, if you're not a regular attender, we don't normally talk so much about housekeeping, uh, but there's some matters that have come up. And the reason I'm bringing them up today is because they are they are the occasion for this series. They're not they're not what the series is going to be about, but they are the occasion that prompted me to uh, begin this series. And uh, what they have to do with is um, um, they are they are like I said inside matters, so kind of a inside baseball. Um, but there are two matters related to the United Methodist Church. Jewel Lake Parish is a union church of the United Methodist Church and the Presbyterian Church USA. So one of our two denominations is going through some convulsions right now, and uh, there's two matters related to that that need to be discussed uh, briefly. Um, I'm going to have, there is already more information online on the webpage, jop.church, um, and then I'll put it on Facebook as well so you can get links to all the details if you want. But I just want to cover it briefly here so you can say you heard something about it. So the first one is to change the Alaska United Methodist Conference from a missionary conference to a missionary district. And to understand what that sentence means, uh, you need to understand the way the Methodist Church is organized. The Methodist Church is organized into five in the United States, is organized into five geographical um, uh, uh, jurisdictions. Uh, we're part of the blue one, the western one. And if you zoom in on the western jurisdiction, there's something called the Greater Northwest Episcopal Area. It's called an Episcopal Area because there's one bishop, but there's three annual conferences in it. And those annual conferences currently have either eight or nine districts, depending on whether uh, the AUMC counts as a district. And the plan is to change that from three annual conferences and eight districts to two annual conferences and nine districts. So it's just changing the status of Alaska within that greater northwest Episcopal area. So that is what's going to happen um, if the plans proceed as, as they seem to be. When will that happen? That will happen in February. And why February? So that the General Conference, that's the Global United Methodist Church, can act on it. They have a meeting every four years. They're going to meet in June, and they want this to be on the agenda instead of waiting until September and then having to wait four years for it. So so that's that's the small matter. The big matter is this. There is a schism proposal, or um, technically it is called a, uh, a reconciliation through separation. So reconciliation through separation proposal. Um, but I learned Greek when I went to seminary. I learned the word for split is schism. So it is a schism proposal. It's a plan to split the United Methodist Church into two or more denominations. Um, and uh, that will be voted on in June. It's likely to pass because uh, representatives of several different um, uh, factions within the church have, have agreed to this particular proposal. So that will happen in um, June. And when it happens, there will be two denominations. There is not a, 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 a United Methodist plus a splinter group. There will be two separate denominations. It's actually a formal separation of the church. One of them will, however, keep the name. So that's the only thing that's that's going to be um, in common. So there'll be two different churches, still one United States, but then there'll be two organizations that spread across the United States and may have relationships with uh, Methodist churches abroad as well. So one of them will keep the UMC brand, um, and then how they will organize themselves is, is um, uh, subject to how that plan rolls out. But the one thing that we'll be sure of is that conferences and congregations will decide which denomination they want to be part of. 
Um, that'll take place first on a conference basis, and then congregations can say, yes, we want to do that, or no, um, we don't want to go there, we want to go to the other one. So that's something that will happen um, over the next year or so. So the question that may lead you to is, why make the small move before the big schism? Um, which you'd think you'd, why not let the dust settle and then make your decision about the small, you know, where, where is Alaska fit and all this? And the answer is time and money. Um, the, the timing of the annual conferences is every four years. And Alaska, the Alaska United Methodist Conference is, uh, burning through its reserves. It's, it's burning through about $60,000 a year, I understand. And they don't have enough money to last four years. So they want to get this done so that they can start getting a funding from uh, Seattle and Portland, basically, which have more money than we do. So, so that's, that's the idea. We, we the conference, not Jewel Lake Parish. So, that's the big, the big thing that's going on in the Methodist Church. Two, two different issues. One related specifically to Alaska and its status. Basically, which category, which box it belongs to. And then the other one is this big division going on in the Methodist Church. So, um, like I said, there'll be more information. There is more information online. But I want to make sure I've been clear in what I've said. I don't want to try to explain the whole thing, but did I say anything that you did not understand? Okay. All right. If there's no questions, um, do you know, you know, um, have you ever had the opportunity to say, I don't like to say I told you so, but I told you so. <laughs> there's nothing more fun than to tell people. That I told you so. And I did tell you so. In fact, I know exactly when I told you so. I told you so on January 22nd, 2012. Eight years and four days ago, I was standing right here, and somebody back there asked a question, and I said that the denominations were struggling, and that it was highly unlikely, in my view, that they would be in, that they would be recognizable in 10 years. And I'm right about one of them. Um, and the, there's still two years left on the other, so we'll see about that. And the reason I did that isn't because they give us uh, crystal balls in seminary. Um, the reason I knew it is because as a pastor, I'm exposed to graphs like this that show you the situation that both denominations are in. You can see the blue is the, is the uh, Presbyterian Church, and the green is the Methodist Church, and they've both been shrinking um, for decades. So it's not a big... It's not a big um, uh, you know, if something can't go on forever, then it won't. So um, that's not that's not genius to figure that out. But I'm sorry. Oh. So that's percent of the population. So um, uh, at the beginning of that slide in 1984, about five and a half people out of a hundred would have been Methodist or Presbyterian. Uh, today, it's um, uh, I'm guessing it's going to be about three and a half, something like that. So I don't have fresh data for the Methodist Church. My Methodist data runs out in uh, 2008. So 2008 is our last beta point. So, But I see graphs like this all the time. They, they go through my mailbox. So this is not the, this is not the genius. Um, uh, this is basically you just know that if something is inevitable, it's going to happen. So, um, so I did tell you so eight years and four days ago. Remember that. So, <laughs> all right. Um, so, uh, but it wasn't just looking at graphs like that. It was because I had, I had a career once. I used to work in that room. Um, I worked in a cube farm like a, a lot of you have. And um, we had, I worked in the computer industry. And I worked in it during the 80s and 90s and early 2000s when there was, um, and for all I know there still are, uh, an interminable succession 
of mergers and acquisitions and spinoffs and downsizing. That there was always some new plan that if we just bought that company over there, then all of our problems would go away, or at least we'd have a convenient place to bury them, right? So that was kind of the idea that we could, we could, we could merge, put all of our troublesome problems in that company and then spin it off and then say, you know, I'm still a good CEO. So, so that was, that was my take on it. At the time, the industry used words like dinosaurs mating, things like that to describe what was going on. And what I learned in a cube like that was the only way I could stay sane was to focus on my work, to do my job, to focus on the work that I'd been given and my own career aspirations. And that's what I would encourage our church to do as we think about, as we think about the problems that are going on at the denominational levels. As much as possible, we should stay focused on the, the job we're doing and the job that Jesus has called us to do. And Jesus tells us that despite all those other problems, the harvest is great. And here's what I think he means by that. This is Anchorage. There's 290,000 people living in Anchorage. And Jewel Lake Parish's mission field is that area, basically from, from uh, Minnesota and O'Malley uh, and um, International Airport to the Cook Inlet. So that's basically our mission field. And in that mission field, there's about 22,000 adults and about 8,000 children. And if we drill down into that 22,000 adults, we see that there are, these are small numbers for me, so um, so there's about 11,000 people in that group would call themselves Christians. They've surveyed them and they, you know, using standard surveying techniques, they say there's about 11,000 people who call themselves a Christian of one type or another. There's about 3,300 people who say that they are some other religious affiliation. And then there are 9,000 people, that's the yellow, who would say that they are not, they, they have no religious affiliation. So when Jesus says that the harvest is, is great, He's talking about those yellow, uh, the, the people in the yellow box. But, um, but I think he's talking about more than that because if we drill down on that Christian, uh, the, the, the 10,000, 11,000 people who call themselves Christian or who would call themselves Christian, uh, what we see is there's 3,300 who call themselves Catholic. There are 1,605 who call themselves Methodist or Presbyterian. And there are, uh, about 6,000 who call themselves, uh, Christian of some other variety. Now, here's the thing I do know. There's only one Methodist or Presbyterian church in that zone that, that was laid out. And I don't see 1,604 people here. Last year we had, um, I've got the stats, last year we had 73 people that we recognized as regular attenders. Some of them became regular attenders during 2019. And we had 60 people who were kind of one-off, two-off. They came one or two times, and then they went back to wherever they went. They were guests, people you invited, people who just showed up in the door. So that's 125 people. So about um, 80 times that number in our neighborhood call themselves Methodists and Presbyterians. And maybe some of them are driving across town, but I doubt if 1,470 are. So when Jesus says the harvest is great, he's talking about people who already think of themselves if you ask them, they would say, I'm a Methodist. I grew up Presbyterian. So the harvest is great. So Jesus does this thing in um, chapter 10 where he talks to the people 
Uh, he talks to the church. He gives the church instructions. I said, our goal is to stay focused, right? To My goal is to stay focused on the work that Jesus has given me and let these things happen up in the stratosphere um, and, and we'll figure that out when they happen and figure out what our next step is af- after that. That, that basically, that we're going to do the work that Jesus is calling us to. We're going to do what we can to reach the 9,000 people who have no faith and the 1,470 people who probably aren't driving across town. So we're going to try and do that work. And Jesus tells us what, how we do that in chapter 10. In chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gives instructions to the church, and that's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks. We're going to look at what Jesus calls the church to do. Um, we're not going to have a big conversation. I mean, I'd be happy to have a big conversation, but I'm not going to do it as part of this sermon series about what's going on in the Methodist church. Talk to me, or we can organize a town hall or something like that. There's other events that you can do if you want to be part of that. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about what is the church called to do. That's chapter 10. But before chapter 10... We get we get a, pre, a, a prologue, a, a kind of a preface. When Matthew wrote this gospel, he didn't have chapter numbers. The chapter numbers were added about um, eleven hundred A.D. So about eleven centuries later, somebody came along and added the chapters. Matthew just put this little preface at the beginning of what is now chapter ten, and so that's the tail end of chapter nine, and we include it in our program. So let's go ahead and take a look at that. We read that Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area teaching in the synagogues, and announcing the good news about the kingdom. Circle the word good news. This is something churches sometimes fail to convey. When Jesus went from town to town, Jesus spread good news about his kingdom. And I think if the church is communicating the gospel in any way that's not good news, then we are failing to follow Jesus' example. So, So Jesus traveled and he announced good news. He also healed every kind of disease and illness. Jesus did not straighten out people's spirituality. Jesus had people show up and say, my arm is broken or I can't walk. And he said, that's your felt need. Jesus was a felt needs preacher. Jesus dealt with the felt needs of the people in his, in his, um, uh, the, the, the place that he could influence. So in these towns and villages. So he healed their, their diseases and illnesses. This is what the church is called to do. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked at outsiders, the crowds, not his disciples, not the apostles he's about to name, but the outsiders, these strangers, the crowds. Jesus looked at the crowds, and he had compassion on them. He didn't say, you guys better straighten out your life, or you're going to the hot place. Jesus had compassion on them. Why did he have compassion on them? Because they were terrible sinners? No, because they were confused and helpless. Aren't we all? confused and helpless? I mean, just just think about the decisions we're faced with every day, right? Should I should I save the money or should I spend it on that new thing, right? I'm confused. And it used to be I would only get advice from three people, but now I have the internet. I can get three billion people telling me whether or not I should buy the product or not, right? So I am more confused than ever. And the more work I do to get unconfused, the more confused I can get. We're more confused than ever. This is why we have divisions in the church, because churches are confused too. We're also helpless. Some of us know what that actually means. We are helpless because we have an addiction. Some of us are helpless in other ways. We're helpless because there's nothing we can do to stop cancer. There's nothing we can do to stop aging. That there are aspects to our existence that we have no control over. And Jesus looks at us and he has compassion for us. 
because we are like sheep without a shepherd. And then Jesus does something that I was taught in eighth grade not to do. He mixes his metaphors, or Matthew does. So at one sentence he's talking about sheep, and then he says harvest. So we have to kind of follow Jesus around that sharp turn there. But Jesus switches his metaphor, or Matthew switches his metaphor from from a sheep to a harvest. And Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. So chapter 10 is what follows then, and it is instructions for the harvesters. Jesus says, okay, now in the rest of this chapter, we're going to see what those instructions are. And before we do this, you know, you know, I, I, I love quoting C.S. Lewis, and I particularly love quoting the, the screw tape letters. It's, it's a terrible and awesome book. Um, it's, it's this, it's this correspondence between two, two demons who are discussing how they can tempt a particular person, how they can make him walk away from his faith. And in it, um, the one demon, he says, he says, you really messed up. You let him become a Christian. There will be penalties that will be applied to you for your, for your, for your failure. But then he says, but all is not lost. We can still salvage something here. And he says this, he says, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. I do not mean the church as we, we demons, see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. So we're going to talk about the visible church, the church that we see, and we're going to learn to see the church like Jesus. So today what I want to do is I want to look at what Jesus discovered in the 12 apostles, what Jesus saw that the apostles could become that nobody else would have guessed. So we read that Jesus called his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to throw out, to throw them out, and to heal every every disease and every sickness. So um, Jesus equips the church not with angels, not with you know robotic doctors, um, whatever it would be that that could that could throw out the demons. Jesus equips ordinary people with the things that the church needs to carry out its mission. Jesus equips the church with people, and then he lists twelve of them. Here are the name of the twelve apostles. The apostle, the word apostle, simply means to be sent. Jesus is going to send them, and that's what we're going to see over the next few weeks. Jesus sends these these apostles, these people who have been sent. Um, Jesus. Um, has collected 12 of them and gives them specific instructions. So, first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas, who betrayed Jesus. These lists... There's several lists like this in the in the New Testament. Um, list of the apostles or list of the disciples. They always begin with Peter. They always inevitably begin with Peter. First, Simon, who is called Peter. Why? Why? What did Simon do? What made Simon so remarkable that he is always listed first among the disciples, among the apostles? What do we know about Simon? Let's look at Simon and see what the Bible tells us about Simon. Well, we read, when we first encounter... Um, uh, Simon, in Luke's biography of Jesus, Simon says this about himself, O oh Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. So we know Simon is a sinner, even by his own admission. He's not even trying to hide it. He says, I'm a sinner. 
in the book of Acts, when Simon is, is uh, on trial before the uh, ruling high council, uh, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They were, the, the Greek word is idiotes. They were idiots, okay? That's where we get our word idiot. They were untrained. They, they did not have any training. They didn't go to some Bible school. So they're not educated, and they're sinners, all right? Peter, in particular, is a sinner. So what else do we learn about Peter? Well, Jesus gives him a job. He says, stay here and pray while, stay here and wait while I go and pray. And then, this is on, on the night before he was arrested. He goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays for a while and he comes back and Peter is napping. And he says, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Right? How good, how good a person can Peter be? So, you know, Peter's looking a lot like me right now. <laughs> So, what does Jesus see in Peter? Well, we remember this part from the, the, the time when Jesus is on trial. Peter is in the, the courtyard of the high priest, and one of the people in the courtyard asks him, you're not one of his disciples, are you? And he denies it, saying, again, I am not. So Jesus denies, uh, Peter denies Jesus, he's uneducated, he's a sinner, and he falls asleep on the job. So, qualifications for leadership in the church. So what is it, what is it that Jesus, that Jesus sees in Peter? Well, when Jesus is resurrected, he has a breakfast on the beach with Peter, and he asks him three times, do you love me? And Peter was hurt the third time, and he says, Lord, you know everything, you know that I love you. So maybe that's part of what Jesus saw in him. Something else Jesus saw in him was at that first encounter when, when Peter said, I'm a sinful man. Jesus had just asked him to let down his nets for a catch of fish. And Peter said, Master, we worked all night long and we have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. So what can we sum up Peter? We can say Peter loved Jesus and he obeyed him. He wasn't educated. He fell asleep on the job. He had all the flaws we can imagine. But he loved Jesus and he obeyed him. So, that's what it takes to go first. What does it take to go second? Here's Andrew. He is Peter's brother. And the way that Peter actually first is introduced to Jesus is Andrew brings Simon, Simon Peter, to meet Jesus. Later on, when the group is about to feed the, the, the multitude, um, we read that it is Andrew who locates the boy who's got the five fishes and uh, five barley loaves and two fish. So Andrew, Simon's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. So we read that he's located this boy. And then um, later on, we read, um, also in John's Gospel, we read that some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover um, paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. Bethsaida, um, we know, was on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which means it was in the more Greek, um, uh, the part of, the, the part of uh, Galilee that was more influenced by Greek culture. Um, that's also indicated by the fact that Philip has, the, has a Greek name, so he's named after um, Alexander the Great's dad, Philip. 
And they say, Sir, we want to meet Jesus. And Philip tells Andrew, who also has a Greek name, about it. And they went together to see Jesus. So they, they're saying, somebody here has to be willing to, to, to take a chance listening to us Greeks, because we want to meet this Jesus guy too. And so they naturally go to the people with Greek names, Philip and Andrew, and they say, can we meet Jesus too? So they take not just a little boy, uh, so, so what kind of person is Andrew? He's the kind of person who takes his brother to meet Jesus. He takes a little boy to meet Jesus, and he takes some Greeks to meet Jesus. Andrew brings people to Jesus. That's pretty much all we know about Andrew. If you were to write his tombstone, that's probably what you'd put on it. Andrew brought people to Jesus. So James and John, what do we know about James and John? Well, uh, we know that um, uh, they had that famous um, uh, opportunity to to kind of jump the line. They asked Jesus, hey, um, teacher, we want you to do us a favor. We want you to give us top jobs in your administration. We want you, Jesus, to help us carry out our program. We, we want to enlist you. We want to use your power to do the things we want to do. That's, that's really kind of the, the, the big image we get of James and John. They say, we want you to help us. We also know that they were hotheads. Jesus called them sons of thunder, maybe because of things like this. They were passing through Samaria. The people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call fire down from heaven to burn them up? Let's nuke this village. And Jesus turns around and says, no, let's don't. <laughs> Jesus turns and rebukes them. So we know they're hotheads with ambition. They want to use Jesus to affect their program. But we also know from the end of their lives that they were different. We read in the book of Acts, King Herod Agrippa began to persecute some believers in the church. He had the apostle James, John's brother, killed with a sword. And he sent John into exile on the island of Patmos, which is, think, think Devil's Island or Alcatraz. He sends him to exile on an island. And there John writes this, We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. By the time of their deaths, they're no longer concerned about getting Jesus to carry out their program. They're now doing their best to carry out Jesus' program. And that's what I would say about them. James and John adopted Jesus' plan for their lives. This is the key question for every Christian. Are you willing to consider that God's plan for your life might be different than your plan? And if so, which one are you going to aim for? James and John said, we want Jesus' plan. So, what about Thomas? Thomas, famously doubting Thomas, Thomas tells the disciples after Jesus has been seen alive, after his resurrection, he says, I won't believe it until I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers in them and place my hands into the wound on his side. Thomas is doubting Thomas. But earlier in John's Gospel, we read this. We read that Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. Thomas loved Jesus perhaps as much as Peter. And he said, I want to be where Jesus is, even if it means dying. So, yes, Thomas had doubts. And Jesus is okay with doubt. 
But Thomas trusted Jesus. And that's why we remember Thomas. That's what Jesus uncovered by appointing Thomas to be an apostle. These next two are my favorite two members of the apostles. Matthew the tax collector and Simon the Canaanian. Now the word Canaanian sounds like the land of Canaan, if you're a Bible person. It's spelled differently. It's actually from a different word. Um, this, is, this is the Aramaic word that means um, zealot. And uh, in, in other, in other uh, documents in the New Testament, he's sometimes called Simon the Zealot. And a zealot is, depending on your, your, where you stand, they're either freedom fighters or they're terrorists. So um, think Timothy McVeigh or don't, depending on how you feel about Timothy McVeigh. But that's, that's kind of the general area that Simon the Canaanian is. Okay, he's someone who's perfectly fine blowing up buildings, um, cutting throats, doing all kinds of nasty deeds in order to kick the Romans out of the Holy Land. Simon the Canaanian. And he's a member of Jesus' inside group. But so, in the same group, is Matthew the tax collector. Who is Matthew the tax collector? He's a guy who paid for a commission to shake down his fellow countrymen and send the money to a foreign country so that he could get rich on the... He could rake a percentage off the top. He said, I'm perfectly fine oppressing my fellow people on behalf of a foreign occupying empire so long as I can get rich off of it too. Matthew the tax collector, the collaborator, and Simon the terrorist... It just baffles me that two people so opposed to each other could find a spot in Jesus' inner circle, and they do. So, Matthew and Simon got along somehow. And I know that there are people that you're friends with on Facebook. There's probably Christians. You may have friends from this church who you're friends with on Facebook, and every time you see their posting, you think to yourself, maybe I should just block this person. <laughs> you say, you know, they don't have, you know, they've got the wow and they've got the angry, but they don't have the you're an idiot. And that's what I really need here. I need, I need to be able to tell this person what a fool they are, right? And let me assure you, whatever degree of dislike you have for their, their politics or, or whatever their, whatever it is that you're reacting to, it's nothing compared to Matthew and Simon. That, that you may have people, you think, you know, think about the Methodist church, right? It's gonna split, right? They, they call it, they call it reconciliation through separation. Okay. We're gonna reconcile by never seeing each other ever again. <laughs> okay. Why do they do that? Because they simply can't stand looking at each other. They're just tired of hearing each other's crap. And they're saying, you know what? The best thing we can do now is just to part. But if Matthew and Simon could get along, then maybe we can get along. And again, I can't, I can't control what's happening up in the stratosphere, but this is our job as a church. Can we get along as Christians? Can we get along somehow? Like Matthew and Simon. So the only other one of these we know anything about from the Bible is Judas. So I want to talk about Judas. What do we know about Judas? In Matthew, in John 13, Jesus, it begins this way. It says, Jesus knew his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, 
He loved them to the end. He takes off his robe, he puts on a towel, he washes his disciples' feet, and then he serves them a meal. And he gives a piece of food to Judas and says, the one who will betray me is the one who dips his food in the same dish as me. And then Judas takes the food from him. Jesus says, go out and do what you have to do. And Judas leaves. And what can we say? Jesus loved him, knowing exactly what he was going to do, right up to the end. Jesus washed his feet. Jesus fed him a meal. Jesus knew he was going to betray him, and Jesus loved Judas to the very end. This is the model that Jesus gives the church. There's going to be people in the church who are not Christians. Jesus told us that. Jesus said that there was wheat among the tares. There's going to be people whose sexuality we disagree with. There's going to be people in the church that that we think that they need to get on top of that that addiction they need to deal with because it's hurting people around them. There's going to be people who have tanked their finances, not the first time, not the second. This is the third time. They keep coming back to me. There's going to be people that drive us nuts. But Jesus presents us with an example of someone who never quits loving. So the call for us as a church is to be like Jesus, to never quit loving. The call for us is to bring people to Jesus, is to accept Jesus' plan for our lives, is to go ahead and have doubts, to welcome people who have doubts, but to trust Jesus despite our doubts, to get along with each other, and to obey what Jesus calls us to do. Let's be that kind of church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are difficult times for the church, and particularly for our two denominations, Lord. We are struggling, and um, we're tired of looking at each other. We're tired of hearing the same dumb ideas from dumb people. So, Lord... Convict us. Convict us of how we are being unchristlike, and teach us to be to love like Him. Lord, we have our wishes and our ambitions for the church. Teach us to instead adopt Your ambitions. Lord, let us have our doubts, but let us trust. We pray, Lord, that You would make us like these ordinary people. And let us have the impact they had, not in the world perhaps, but at least in our mission field. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.